0: You are listening to The Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing with the topic that is basically our basic existence, and we desire to for you to be able to navigate through a framework of worldview. So we've been spending some time on the topic of worldview. What is worldview? How do we develop a worldview? And what is a framework that you can develop your own worldview? Our desire, though, is that worldview would be relevant and loving to people so as jesus tells us to love your neighbor love god and love your neighbor and love yourself that we would actually develop a worldview that expresses those commandments or that great commandment that we have so we are well we took a couple of weeks off because Jake and I had a race that we were doing, Ironman California. So we decided to take a couple weeks off to recover from that. We're back, of course, each and every week to finish up this topic and continue with other topics that are incredibly interesting and God ordained, I would say. So, so here we are talking about worldview and. Honestly, this is just a deeper dive into maybe some subject matter that you are familiar with or unfamiliar with. And if you've remembered from previous podcasts, our framework of worldview is developed or copied from the Belgium atheist philosopher, Leo Apostol. He came up with a six-point idea of worldview or a framework of worldview to follow. So this is a method or a framework. It is not the actual worldview. And I want to be very clear about that. So we talk all around the subject, talk directly at the subject, give our opinions, give our thoughts. But you're in a different context. You're in a different world. You are in a different circle of influences and so maybe your worldview will be a little bit different than ours but a worldview is a fundamental cognitive orientation of you as an individual or society as a whole that encompasses the whole of an individual or society's knowledge and point of view so really our worldview is based on our point of view our perspective our viewpoints, our filters. So we all have influences that, honestly, we need to be very careful of and we need to really vet out what our influences are because they can shape our existence. They can actually shape our decision-making paradigms and shape our future. So here's the framework of Leo Apostol, the atheistic Belgium philosopher. Leo Apostol says this, number one in a framework is an explanation of the world. Now, that's very difficult to do. And lots of people have different explanations of the world. But honestly, that is just a framework. What is your explanation of the world? Then a futurology, which is where are you heading after this world? You know, you're only given 70 plus, you know, promised. And so, what is the. What is the uh, average age now? High 70s? Is that what it is? So let's say it's what is it? Low 70s? Is it 50? What is the what is 50s the average age? Is
1: average age, I believe. Somewhere I'll look it up.
0: Shut the door. Well, you have all of like Is it that like, it, one? It developing it nations. Out
2: in, in mortality. So oh. like if you live past 5, you're doing pretty good. 5? 70 something.
0: I just turned 50, so I must be doing 10 times good. Yes. Okay. So average age, whatever your promised average age is, whatever that is. Uh, where are you heading after you, know, you bite the bullet? Where after you basically croak and you're six feet under, where are you going? Where does your soul go? Do you believe in a heaven? Do you believe in a hell? And what versions of those do you believe? Check out that podcast, it was incredibly interesting. Then your values, the answers to your ethical questions, the things that you're listening to your steady stream of social media and your steady stream of news channel inundating your brain with information and opinion and jargon and rhetoric. What are your values and your answers to the ethical questions after all of that? We discussed that. Then the praxis. How do we attain the goals that are put out in front of us? How do we actually practice these things, these ethical values or these uh, the answers to our ethical questions? Then, then we skipped a little bit where we actually constructed a worldview. We put truth on pause. So number six is actually the construction of worldview. And next week we get to to sit with Jake and he's going to put together a worldview that is honest, transparent, vulnerable, loving, giving, incredible. His is going to be the best. Incredible. Incredible. (laughs) So he's going to spend time constructing a worldview and then we're going to rip it to shreds. We're going to peel it apart like like pulled pork. We're just going to eat it for lunch. And then we're going to help bandage his wounds after we pick apart his his worldview hopefully not we'll probably just shake our heads and go that was great okay sure. and then wonderful. To, yeah wonderful so then the other is number five so we skipped to six then we went back to five because because the theory of knowledge which is epistemology is the study of knowledge so the theory of knowledge is a huge topic and we've actually spent Now, this is going to be our second podcast on this and two-week break to think all about it. So we have lots to say tonight because we've thought for two solid weeks. So we've made mention of different things in this podcast. The six-point framework, of course, we've talked through all six points. This is the final point, the final answer to all of your questions we will give tonight. Uh, And that's the six-point framework. But in previous podcasts, we, we made mention of this. When you deconstruct old ideas, so let's say you have a worldview and you deconstruct that worldview, you have to be headed somewhere. Otherwise, you just deconstruct into nothing. You have to construct into something. And so that's our purpose of this podcast is as we deconstruct worldviews and ideas and old thoughts and historical garbage and crap that that has inundated our churches and our minds and our thoughts and our faith. As we deconstruct all of that, we have to construct something forward, and that's what we are doing. So I, I want to be so different that I end up being exactly the same. That's not where we want to be. I want to be different. I want to be more like Jesus, and in order to do that, I need to deconstruct what's not like Jesus in order to capture and construct what is like Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do so our framework sometimes is disrupted we get scared our worldview is shaken the last couple of years i think that has happened we need to construct something moving forward so this is our thinking space we call this our thinking space we talk about a lot of things here we talk about this gorilla that is above my head right here we talk about fun things like that we talk about All kinds of faith topics, and we hope that you find this interesting and you get something out of it. So our tonight is the best attempt at explaining the truth. That's what we're talking about tonight, is is the explanation of the truth and really the theory of epistemology or the study of truth or knowledge. The theory of knowledge is where do we get our knowledge from that's a good question where do we get our knowledge from you might get them from your church you might get them from the Bible you might get them from a textbook you might get them from a mentor a teacher your high school social studies teacher your college calculus professor whatever it is that whatever the person or whoever or the ideas you we all ingest knowledge and the reality is, is we all have different forms, framework, amount, and filters of our knowledge. So you might, you know, read something, you go, I don't believe that. I think, I think it's really important that if you don't believe something, you better have a reason not to believe it. And so if you say, I don't believe in global warming, Why? because your politician said it wasn't true. So we have to really think through. And and to cut in there,
1: on the other hand, you should have a reason to believe the things that you believe. Oh, I was getting there. I was getting there. (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: Cut me off. So here we are, and now we believe things and okay, so we let me finish that. So we don't believe things. We better have a reason for not believing them. But just not believing things and coming up with a framework of what you don't believe is exactly where the church has been for centuries. Here's my prepositions of what I don't believe. I don't believe in this sin or I don't believe in this society of the, the, this ethic in society. I don't believe in this or that. And we are notorious for communicating and preaching what we don't believe. But yet we are also notorious for not communicating what we do believe. And so we need to come up with a framework also and building blocks of what we believe. And why do you believe them? Because ultimately when you come up with a bank of knowledge and can defend why you believe something, then you can start peeling away the things, well, maybe the things that you didn't believe in or maybe the things you believed in you actually don't believe in. And so here's an example of that. In certain church circles, Genesis 1 through 3 is a literal form of creation. It's historical. It's scientific. It's all that... We need to know that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested and called us all good and called the universe good and the earth good and we've gone along for a long time just buying into that's the form of creation. Why do you believe that? That's a good question. Why do we believe that? Science tells us something completely different. The world tells us something completely different. Culture tells us something completely different. They actually think they were kind of crazy for the circles that believe that. They kind of think that those circles are crazy. We better find out why we believe such things. We need to have a a foundation of why we believe such things. And so, you know, I don't believe that in a literal seven days of creation, so I don't need to worry about that one. Uh, But some people do. Some people have a very strong view of roles in the church and it becomes very, I guess, unequal, I'll call it and abusive where men and women are treated unequally in the church. And many times I ask, why do you believe that? Why do you actually subscribe to complementarianism? That's what that's called, where men are in charge in leadership and women are kind of in a, in a, a different role. You know, They can't serve as elders, they can't serve as, as main teachers or leaders. Some people believe that women can't pray in church most people can't give me a reason actually why they believe what they believe when it comes to gender roles in the church so we need to we need and and you know what's really cool is when you start discovering why you believe something you usually many times end up hmm, questioning it and not believing it and so that's what we're doing we're constructing and deconstructing and pulling things apart and really coming up with a solid i would guess the theory of knowledge and a framework of knowledge in this study on truth. So what is a theory of epistemology? In summary, that is a theory of knowledge. We have empirical truth and rational truth, how we perceive the world around us. We have types of knowledge. The types of knowledge are like personal knowledge and tacit knowledge and procedural knowledge and propositional knowledge. We went over all of that three weeks ago in our podcast. I just want to remind you that all of that information is right there. And so also this tripartite theory of knowledge is also important, where if you believe something with justification and it is true, then you know it. Otherwise, you don't. So there's a belief You can believe something that's not true too, but there's no justification for it. That's not a tripartite theory of knowledge. You believe something, it has to be true, and you can justify that belief and truth. That is a theory of knowledge. So that's what we're covering, but we're also covering just an incredible amount of other material tonight that we're going to get into. And I'm very excited about. This, if I can open up my notes, there they are using this new little device, this note taker device that I'm very excited about. So that was my, that was my recap of short, really irresponsible recap of epistemology. Go back (laughs) to that podcast. It's much better. Just review that podcast. Huh?
2: No nuance November.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so just go back there and just please check that out. All right, we're going to have an open discussion. But first, am I doing a little narrative, Jake, before we get started? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So our open discussion tonight is about some terms of, of how they relate to truth. I think a definition of terms is really important. And my wife Amanda told me that we use... Big, big words in this podcast. And I think we do. We use big words, big words for big people. And we use big words and we're not, you know, we're just like s- small potatoes. So, so we just like think we're smart. We use these like big words. So I think it's really important to start a practice of defining terms so that everyone understands what we're talking about. So when we use terms like epistemology, I define that as that's the theory or the study of. So ology means study of and epistis means knowledge. So the study of knowledge. Um, If I don't describe that or if nobody described that, you wouldn't know what theology was. That's the study of God. Biology is the study of life. Uh give me another one. Psychology is the study of the mind or the psyche. So we have we have different ologies out there and epistemology. Geology. Which one? Geology. Geology is the study of the earth, dirt, rock. Anthropology, study of Sociology. society. Thank you. Go, go, right? We have all the... Oh, my goodness. We have so many ologies. All of them. All the ologies. Stop. All ology means is the study of, in Latin, that's a Latin root, study of, and then whatever that front word is, like epistemology is the study of knowledge. So when we use that, you can, any ology, you know, like theology or paleontology or one of those ologies, you can understand that's the study of something. But tonight we're gonna define some terms. Let's define them first. Let's just do a quick definition and then we'll go back to them. How about that? So we have objective truth, subjective truth, uh, axiom, false truth, propositional truth, and fallacies. So those are our terms. So give me the objective truth. What is the definition?
1: I'll go first, ready? Let me go first.
2: I I can. Yeah. Like Okay. Uh like the closest thing I have is like absolute truth. Like it's it is true regardless of what I think or what I experience and it's usually in opposition to subjective truth, it's a little hard to define them separately rather than yeah. defining them at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So do you
1: t- take subjective truth and then define it with objective truth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, subjective truth is, I think, more based on uh, the personal experience or perception. Um, it's truth that we know because of. Our experiences um, and you can't necessarily prove that it's absolute for all things at all times um, but it is true for you at this time
1: I would say that objective truth is the very small nugget and I think in, in my section I'll even define more of what that nugget is that all other truths are subject to
2: Mm.
1: they have an object it's very very small it's big really but in this case in all the subjective truths out there it's a very small a small proposition then all other propositions are subjective truths which are based upon those objective truths so subject so other truths are subjected to that object and so, define those together: object and subject. Object being like the king, and the subject being the servants of that king.
0: So you just threw in proposition. So, so now define proposition.
1: Proposition would be any statement, fact, false fact, any like uh, really any statement, any sentence that a person is, is saying is true or not true.
2: A truth claim.
0: The truth, a truth claim. claim. So a proposition would be a we believe statement with a therefore.
1: I would just say we believe statement. So like uh, okay, we believe in, we already brought up complementarianism, right? We believe in complementarianism.
0: That's oh, a problem. I, I don't. But... I know.
1: <laughs> but, like, are, are we so? Like, uh, if you go to church's faith statements and it's bullet pointed, yes, we all, believe in the Right. All of those are propositions. Okay. They're just claims of truth, claims of fact.
2: I think maybe it's important to note that um, sometimes the we believe part gets left off. Like it's still there, but sometimes we just say this is the truth. You know, the earth is flat. As though it's a fact it. when it's yeah. a proposition.
0: Yeah. So a proposition like, leaves off the we believe?
2: No, I think it's, I think the we believe is implicit.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: But sometimes it doesn't get said out loud.
1: Right. And you also have the idea that, that all all claims of truth either subjective or objective are propositions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so like a lot of words describe the same things especially in the study of epistemology and the study of knowledge the study of truth in that we even talk about axioms axioms are also claims of truth and that's another word that we have to define that. People throw these words around like proposition, axiom, subjective to objective, but really they're just statements that are based upon each other.
0: Okay. And now fallacy fallacies and false. Mm-hmm. So now describe those.
2: Um I mean I would describe false as like the opposite of true, right? Um I think fallacy is a little bit more nuanced in that it's almost more like a flaw. Like it seems like it's it's part of the process from one idea to the next. If this follows you know, this follows this, and if your connecting point in between there doesn't hold up, then that's a fallacy.:
0: mm-hmm. so it it goes along the um, tripartite knowledge. Would be if you believe something, it actually has to be true and be justified. So if something is missing there, then that's a fallacy. Mm -hmm. Because you believe something that's not true but have justification, that's the fallacy. Yes. If you believe something that's false, but then don't have the justification, would that just be false?
1: I mean, that's a great... It's a great way of thinking about it. Sounds right to me. Yeah. Okay. It's a little bit bit cryptic, but we definitely can figure that out. Um, I would just say false is anything that does not align to the propositions that you grew up through your social cultural understanding of life. That false is more of a feeling... Not a fact. And then you have fallacy. Fallacy is the idea that um, people are trying to to win truth, and because truth equals power, right? I think I think when we start talking about this, know that like, like when with the idea of holding truth, and that's that's why. Scripture in the Bible has been put on a pedestal that it was never meant to be on Mm -hmm. Because we're trying to somehow hold truth But instead we enter into these Into these fat logical fallacies these these false fallacies and so like a practice that I do especially with with statements that I feel I feel a cringe about is that I pull out Wikipedia, I look up logical fallacies and I read <laughs> I read what people are writing and I try to match which logical fallacy is mm. this. There's a huge list of logical fallacies that I think that we could talk about, but um, just, just know that if you just look them up and read them one day, most political campaigns, most political agendas are based upon logical fallacies. Mm. And it's really easy to follow it. And so the most used logical fallacy just to just to talk about it is um appeal to emotions. Mm. And so oh, human beings are just bags of emotions. The issues are just in our tissues. Bags of emotions. <laughs> the uh the issues are in our <laughs> tissues, as our yoga instructor told us this week. <laughs> and so as being bags of emotions when when we get excited no matter if we believe it's true or not if if it excites us we'll follow it it's an appeal to emotions and so like january 6th was an appeal to emotions the stops the steeled campaign right mm. so they thought that their democracy was being taken from them they and them but now like there's other appeal to emotions that that both, all spectrums, all sides use because it's the, it's the easiest to win. You have like what's called the straw man fallacy or the ad hoc fallacy. And those are basically ideas that you are using a separate argument to attack another argument. Like um, we saw it in the abortion debate a lot that it is an appeal to mm-hmm. emotion, but also there's another agenda happening underneath it all that we are attacking one issue so we're attacking abortion mm-hmm. because we don't want to deal with universal healthcare, contraception education things that actually make a difference we don't want to deal with it right
0: okay, okay. any more thoughts I think that, that is, uh, that's a great list of definitions and terms to start with. I think that there is a there is a narrative that I want to give first before we then start working through those definitions again. So if I can give that narrative and then we can start working through, because then we can bring up some things that are Mel, uh, well, maybe some logical fallacies that now that we understand them a little bit better, um, I'm going to read a scripture for you. That what a scripture for you, <laughs> and so in the scripture Romans one twenty, I've been camping on this for a while. And this scripture has to do with absolute truth. And when I look at the Greek version, I have to look at the Greek version that um, that taught that that the scripture uh, talks about um, or is translated from, but from the New American standard version, okay, this is what it says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, understood, understood by what has been made, by what has been made. So if something is clearly perceived and understood by what is, has been made, His actual characters and attributes are not seen. Like God is not seen. So God is hidden. Can I say that? That God is hidden. And his character and attributes are hidden and can only be expressed in the likeness of what has been made. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so when I pull that scripture apart, and I really think about what it's actually saying, right, is we don't have God walking around on earth, and we don't have God saying, you know, what up, yo, and, and just having a conversation, and hey, this is what I'm about. We have the Bible and what the interpretation of what God is about. And we have the universe and the trees and the birds and the earth and the dogs and the cats and all the good things that we like as human beings but the characters and attributes can only be seen through what he has been what he has made including us as people so really god is hidden the absolute truth is hidden The object is hidden. And so when I say it that way, the only way I know to know God, according to Romans, is I perceive God through the likeness of what God has made. So when I think about absolute truth, it is impossible, the Bible teaches me, That it's impossible to know God outside of influence, culture, people, universe, gravity. It's impossible to know God outside of what God has made. So absolute truth is absolutely hidden. So so the Jews and Hebrews knew this. And they came up with a method of interpretation when they looked at ancient texts. And what we call, there's a big term for big people called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is basically just the methodology in which we interpret things. You could co- find it, you can find that word, just Google it, and you can find a better definition maybe than that. But it's basically how we interpret things, or the methodology in how we interpret things. So I would be very irresponsible to say the methodology of interpretation has been the same for eons of time. That would be super irresponsible. So my slice of—did we figure out the 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 uh, the age, the average age lifespan?
1: Um, so not including infant mortality. Uh, the average age is like 70.
0: I knew it. It was in the 70s because we take vitamins now.
1: Uh, okay.
2: Are we talking the world or the U.S.?
1: The U.S. is 74, which puts us at
0: 52nd place.
2: In yeah, the world. we've dropped in the last few years.
0: I know these blue zones are taking over the world. So well,
1: uh, Hong Kong is number one.
0: Really? What's mm. their average age?
1: 84?
0: wow that is like that's Japan, a high that's a Japan's high average age.
1: 81 so i'm just thinking it's in the top of my head here yeah yeah
0: um okay is, so my so my family doesn't live that long on one side so i got a good maybe 76 well, fred yeah. is here so yeah so i mean yeah he's still here but yeah i got it i got good genes and then i got you know, not so good genes. So we'll see what I get. So I get this slice of life, right? My 70 plus years. And I think about my version of interpretation is only this slice. Then you broaden it and say, well, there's, you know, there's influences. So I look at evangelicalism in general. Let's say the birth of evangelicalism. Let's say it's, you know, 100 years that's a way overshot but it's like what then when was yes. billy sunday we have to look up billy sunday oh, in the right? 1920s so okay. Billy okay. Sunday. okay okay so i was good there so 100 years of the birth of the infancy of evangelicalism billy sunday so <clears throat> you think about that friend that's 100 years of interpretation a methodology of hermeneutics how to read the bible then back it up to Reformation. So now we're looking at 500 years. So now we have that slice of interpretation. The Jews have been doing this for thousands of years. So if you think about the Jewish interpretation of ancient texts, they use a methodology, and this is the methodology. They sit down like in a rabbinical circle with maybe a teacher or a leader, and then you have the disciples in a circle. And they, they go through a methodology, a fourfold, or what I'll call, what, what is called, not what I call, but what is called the four senses, the four senses of interpretation. So when I want to find out what is the truth, what is this scripture or this text telling me, what is this textbook, what is this biology textbook teaching me? Is it true? Is it not true? Right? So we sit around with a text, whatever that text is. It could be your CNN, Fox News, ABC news article. Is this true? Right? And they sit around in a circle and they discuss in a format. Now, I would say they did it with ancient texts in the Bible, but I'm just kind of joking there. But I'm, I mean, it can apply to anything, really. And the first is the Peshat. They have a Peshat interpretation. That's the literal sense of interpretation. That is a literal look at scripture where Moses cut the Red Sea in half and split the waters and took the Israelites across the water. Why? Because he was standing at the edge of the water and he was almost killed, and the whole group was killed, and he needed to get across the water. That, that's just kind of a basic, you know, let's just call that the flat line interpretation plane. The early church called that the plane interpretation, which was the Peshat. Then he had the Remez. The Remez is what Well, Jake, to be honest, Jake and Shereya and I spent a lot of time in the Ramez, and that's the allegorical story, narrative, metaphor, form of interpretation. So you look at the Red Sea and go, well, what does this mean? Like, is there a bigger understanding? Is there a bigger picture? Is there there more of a story here? Yes, it's a rainbow, double rainbow. Like, we need to look at... Like what happened at the Red Sea and the splitting of water, meaning salvation, and Moses being like the (laughs) Christ-like figure leading through the baptismal waters of the Reed Sea to the other side to escape the devil, the empire, and Pharaoh in his wicked ways, right? So so that's the allegorical form. Mm -hmm. And then there's the moral form. The moral form is the dinash. And the moral form is when we sit down with that scripture, the, red, the, the cutting of the Red Sea in half, and we go, well, what's the morality there? Well, I hope that I have the courage and the faith like they do, they did, to do something like that. You know, whether you believe the story is actually historical or not, that doesn't matter. It's just, do you have the faith? to do something like that. Do you have the faith to stand at the edge of the water and raise your staff and say, let's put our feet in the water and see what happens, right? So that's a that's a character, an ethical, a moral sense hmm. of the scripture. That's the denos. And then you have the sowed. And the sod is the futuristic or mystical form. And so maybe we start reading like a a more mystical futuristic sense of how this is a recreation story and then it's a recreation story in the end. And we see that how Revelation ties to Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and there's basically the baptismal waters before the throne are now silent. There's no cutting of water because salvation is already here. So maybe we see that futuristic sense. It's very easy to spend too much time in one of those senses where we can allegoricalize and metaphorize and story eyes narrative forms of literature and just make everything a cute story, right? Or we can spend too much time in the future and our heads are in the clouds of heaven somewhere. And there's no boots on the ground. In the moral sense, we then just shame everybody because you know we don't have the bravery and the courage of the Israelite people, or whatever. Um, or we just make it plain and a little too plain, and it's not the intention of the writer is to make it that plain. So, so that's what the Jews have done for thousands of years, literally for a very millennia of time, the Peshat, Ramez, Denash, the Sod, the Plain, the Allegorical, the Moral, and the Futuristic sense. When they sat around in the rabbinical circle, they came up with an interpretation for senses of ancient texts, and they declared that a sense of truth. It was only a sense of truth. It wasn't the the truth it was a sense of truth and they call that a communal hermeneutic where we have a community of sense where we're sensing this to be the direction can that sense change like especially moral futuristic and an allegorical can that change based on your cultural influences absolutely so martin luther had a big problem with this because he didn't like allegory and he didn't like future things and he was just a grump. So, so he wanted to throw out some of the traditional Jewish interpretive hermeneutic practices. And so he threw out the allegorical sense. That's why um, any uh, apocalyptic literature is thrown out of his Bible, Revelation, second Peter Thessalonians, they're gone. He didn't like James because that was too literal, and so we're going to throw that out too. Um, and so, too much futuristic, too much allegory, too much plain text, and so where do we fall? Moral. And so we get this basically five hundred years of shame, right? Yeah. Of, of I think, and going back to
1: what you first said at the beginning is, is key to this that. Uh, the hidden God Luther did a lot of work on the hidden God. Yeah. Because, and the, the, the big word there is Deus absconditus, which goes back all the way to the beginning of the church that those who seek God mm-hmm. will oftentimes not find God. Mm. And so a great example of that recently is, is mother Teresa. Like if I'm, if I'm, she's, in her last, of her last writing, she's like, "If I'm ever made a saint, I will be the saint of darkness." Mm-hmm. And so, because she would never heard from God, there's this mm-hmm. story of her in a train. There's, there's some oddness there that people can bring up, but we can talk about it later. No, it's um, good. Yeah, it's good. The idea of of shame and the morality comes from that. Luther had a hard time with the absent God. Mm. And so the whole time they put this other proposition forward proposition, right? Yeah. Of, of the revealed God. Mm. And so that's the, uh, the Deus revelatory or something like that. But so keep going, Kevin, but your idea of shame and God being absent is super important to this topic.
0: Okay, we can go back to that. So then moving forward to, oh, basically evangelicalism and the birth of evangelicalism. In modern theology, they came up with what's called the kernel and the husk form of interpretation where the husk, like corn, kernel corn, Mm -hmm. the husk becomes culture and the evil age, according to Colossians uh, three, culture is evil and so therefore we need to separate the kernels of truth from the husk. Get rid of the husk and only be left with the kernels of truth. Now that is, all of that is from a gentleman by the name of Jared Bias with his book uh, Love N- Matters not, More. Not,
1: not the kernel. N- and the, not, yeah.
0: No, 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 yeah. No, that, no. that all comes from Jared Bias and Love Matters More in um, his work on Love Matters More, which is a great book. You should check it out. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and he he talks a lot about interpretation and filters. Where he doesn't go, though, which is kind of unfortunate, but but maybe he would listen to this one day and take my advice. So where he didn't go was forward into what I would call progressive interpretation and conservative interpretation. So so conservative interpretation is the kernel and the husk. You can bet on that's a conservative view that we're trying to find these kernels of truth and separating culture from the kernel. of truth.
1: Define conservative there, because I think...
0: I'm um, conservative would about,
1: be yeah. You're talking about a denotation not a connotation. Right. There.
0: I'm sorry. It's not conservative politics and it's not conservative theology. It's what's called lower criticism of the Bible. So we take the Bible in a more plain literal form. We throw out allegory. We we take it at f- like literally face value. We take out all of the questions and we only try. To focus on the kernels of truth and all society becomes evil and only the kernels of truth can be focused on. So we take things like out of context in this lower criticism or what's what's really called conservative interpretation, where we we take a, a lower view of the Bible, um, which is super irresponsible, I think.
2: Can I say something about that metaphor?
0: Yeah. The kernel and the husk?
2: Yeah, the husk is there to protect the kernel.
0: Right. Well, I I know, but It's not a it's not a
1: good thing. We're it, saying it's a really bad way of
2: yeah, No, it's a terrible metaphor from somebody who doesn't understand plants.
0: Well, is it the husk or that what's the center part of the Maybe I uh, said it Bob? wrong. Maybe it's the kernel and the cob. I'll have to look it up again. The kernel and the cob. But still, it's still a bad metaphor, whether it's the husk or the cob or Doesn't whatever. Matter. It's all corn. It's all corn, which, you know, <laughs> Everything that's, like saying, that's like saying that society has no influence on what you believe is true. That's right. just like completely irresponsible to say that, right? Nobody actually believes that in practice. We might have that written in our theology books, and we might post that on the internet somewhere. But actually, practice—nobody actually believes that. So, in practice, so but that was a theological interpretation in modern times. The the counter to that is what would be what Karl Barth started out of uh, Germany, and. And Jake and I were able to visit with a gentleman down in California years ago, uh, probably about 12 years ago now. His name was Jürgen Moltmann. And Jürgen Moltmann, I told this story in a group that we met with this morning. So uh, if you have heard this before, then, then great. But Jürgen Moltmann actually was a soldier in the German army during World War II. And the German army, Nazis, right? Uh, had concentration camps uh, with, uh, well, really Jews and also Polish and Russian and anybody that you know Hitler's army would deem as other or not of this pure line of race. I, I, I um, don't know how many people groups were in there. I'll have to research that a little bit more, but I know that there were Jews and all these others as well, a uh, horrific, horrific time in our history and the world history. So Jurgen Maltmann is assigned to the gates of one of these concentration camps. So he lasts literally moments at this gate. We'll just call it moments. And says, He gets nope. there and he's like, nope, I'm not going to do this. I can't be a witness to this. And he runs away and he ends up in a YMCA prisoner of war camp. And YMCAs ran prisoner of war camps. He checked himself into this camp. And that's where he's basically taken care of until the end of the war. He was a a rightful deserter of the, went AWOL of this uh, Nazi army. He then goes back to Tübingen, Germany, to become a teacher, a professor of theology. And this is what he has to reconcile in his brain. The Germans killed the Jews. And Christian theology says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And we killed all these people that don't believe in Christ. So not only did we kill them, but we purposefully, intentionally sent them to hell with our theology. So that's it. I hope that I never have to reconcile those kinds of things in my brain, but he had to reconcile that. And now we have an emergence out of Karl Barth and people like Moltmann and, and others. We have a, a beautiful progressive interpretation, a more higher criticism of the Bible where we look at the Bible differently. We're able to answer questions and ask questions. We're able to look at scriptures and say, is there allegory there? Is it plain? Is it futuristic? Is it moral? Uh, We need to take things more lighter hand instead of a white knuckle grip about what mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle taught me in church, Uh, taking a more looser grip on the things that we Have believed in our history so so that is where that is taken now we see a higher and a lower criticism of interpretation to figure out what is the truth Uh, i would say that ultimately love needs to be our guide and if love is not our guide um, then we need to figure out how to make love our guide but that's the narrative around The interpretation of scripture and figuring out what is true and and what is not true or what is relevant and what is not relevant we pick and choose in the bible and women don't wear their heads covered women don't wear a head covering in church and we also don't allow certain groups don't allow them to speak in church so why don't the churches that don't allow them to speak in church or preach in church or be an elder in church why aren't their heads covered too? So so that interpretation is what I would call a it breaks down. So let's take that. So that complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Egalitarian means that all that all genders can uh, fulfill all roles in the church. They are equal to. Men and women are equal. And complementarianism means that it's women are a complement to men, that men are the head, and women are submissive to men, including the church. And in the church, women in complementarianism can't fulfill pastor roles, like a pastor-lead pastor role. And some they've softened that they can't be associates. And in some circles, they can't pray from the front. Some circles are so legalistic they can't lead worship from the front. Some legalistic circles say they can't even pass communion in the crowd. They can't even touch communion. Um, And women can't serve as elders. So that seems a picking and choosing. So, So what truth definition? Is that false? Is that a proposition? Is that a fallacy? Is that a subjective belief? What is that?
2: My gut says fallacy, but I haven't had a chance to work all the way through it yet.
1: You're asking if the idea of complementarianism is truth, objective truth, subjective truth, fallacy, false. Mm Mm-hmm. I think oh,
0: fuck. if I use my tripartite version of knowledge if I believe something and it's true I can have justification to do it if it's not think, true then I yeah. and I have justification then it's a fallacy I guess in my head
1: I I would I personally would view it as a foul. Uh,
0: I don't know if it's, I don't
1: think that it's necessarily a fallacy because those have rules around it. Right? Okay. Mm. Okay. let okay. to say, to say it, and it's, it is false. Faulty.
0: Yeah, not, but like. Well, I'm going to make it stronger than faulty. So, I think it's false.
1: Okay. Yeah. Because faulty
0: means that it has a couple of crutches holding it up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, but it does have crutches head enough. Like it could, they can point at scriptures and saying, this is, mm-hmm.
0: this is why we do this. So they have justification. They have, but anybody that's a good theologian would look at those scriptures and they know uh, where yeah, they come from.
1: And so just because someone's truth, their subjective truth that they probably would believe is objective truth. Mm. Hmm. See, it's it's hard to debate um, if if people's objective truth. What I said was a nugget, a small little nugget. A kernel. If, kernel. If that if kernel will. or nugget <laughs> becomes so large that it fits all of your understandings of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's where when objective truth becomes dangerous, and so objective truth i think to those types of people would say that that scripture and how they interpret it is Mm. objective truth that you can actually read the bible and experience see and know objective truth
2: Mm.
1: and that's a very low low critical way of thinking about scripture especially that that there's no error there's no there's it is handed down by god and given to the authors to write specific words to be objective truth for us to hold for all of eternity there there is an image of a to us I think to me especially there's there's an image of objective truth in there but all of scripture is based upon the subject part right, it is all of all of scripture is a subject to the object
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so subject comes all subjective truths, all subjective axioms, are social, political, cultural, economic. And so if you look at society, look at culture, look at the political schema, also look at, at the, the environment of economics at the time, then you have a more clear understanding of what's happening, which I think the people that understand um, scripture to to marginalize more instead of create more freedom is where mm-hmm. you start to get into trouble. And mm-hmm. so we would say, say with well, that 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 can't be true because of this. But honestly, in an argument, in a debate, you don't win with this is not true because of this, especially like not a formal debate of, of actually like debate team, right? We're talking about like a, Mm -hmm. a conversation with whomever you choose, you don't, you don't win people over by trying to
0: prove them wrong yeah yeah so when i'm sitting around the table and i'm trying to figure out what we believe about gender equality right Mm -hmm. and is it appropriate to include like a document or a a theology that was developed 200 years ago, is it, is it appropriate to include that theology the as a voice? Or is that—is that setting us up for falsehood? I think it is completely appropriate
1: to include those voices. I think to give them proper weight Mhm and I think the whole idea right now of cancel culture and and the the left and the right especially in our political schema talking about if um if you don't speak exactly how the other side wants you to speak then you're immediately deemed well usually this is by the left to the right they're immediately deemed racist or sexist misogynist they're they're giving all of these these things but Mm, by not giving voice and proper weight and just silencing these this giant swath of people i don't believe it's the silent majority i think it's a very small minority actually but when we have silenced those what we've allowed them to do is to raise up an anger irresponsible anger not true anger but true
0: and true to them Yeah. I, I have been on the other side of, of the table with a group of people that I had absolutely no authority to speak into. None. And I found that very interesting that how that made me feel and how that like I sorted through um, my emotions there because I've been in that position. Now, I will say, I am not in that position very often because I am a white middle-aged male in a society that definitely promotes privilege with white middle-class males. So I have not been uh, in that situation very often. When I have been in that situation and been silenced in those few times um, that does you, you, cause you, a stir of emotion inside of you it's like well why can i speak you were told to be silent no and so that no, is no i wasn't told so that, that, that just a, doubles down on that right like i'm well,
1: well not just that but i think that coming from a perspective of I know when to speak and not to speak. Yeah. I think that even helps our argument now that that document that behind your right ear, there is a Wayne Grudem systematic theology. Um,
0: still there, old standard.
1: Still there. <laughs> I, I don't give that, that huge document, right. credence, right. Right. But it is to be referenced.
2: Can I, I have an example, maybe? Go Yeah. So, like, um, we could take the example of um, J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series, um, which is a really beloved series to people my age in particular, right? Growing up with the stories and they were really meaningful for us. And um, in recent years, J.K. Rowling has said some really awful And bigoted things Um, and so it leaves us with the question of what do we do with this beloved text can we still read it can we still pass it on to the next generation Um, and some people resolve that issue by saying nope we're just never gonna speak of Harry Potter again it's dead to us Um, but I think it's important to still allow it to have voice to to read the stories to find meaning in it and to actually have conversations about the things that are problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, You can still use it as a jumping off point for further conversation.
1: Yeah. And so like, we probably don't believe in the the Quran all the way through, right?
2: Probably not. Probably
1: don't. Some of the propositions that we think, well, that doesn't align with our with our value structure, with our culture, with our understanding of religion, with, and so, but that doesn't mean that we can't read that text to give it weight, to look, okay, this is the culture around 800 AD, which, uh, sorry, CE, um, if I want to be more accurate. So looking at cultural like perspectives is super important when dealing with truth, that there's a big term called anachronism Mm. anachronism is placing today's values and structures on ancient texts Mm. uh ideas or um especially that's usually comes with like scripture right that we we try to word down yeah we try to read the bible as if it was dropped in the laps of the people today reading it my lap right in particular and so when i read when i read the women must stay silent in, in uh, worship and must have their head covered i take that as a as literal and a very i think irresponsible the most irresponsible thing to do with that is to just say is just to say that is that's not for our time because that's placing our value structure on the ancient text instead of saying why why is this not for our time right and that's how we opened up this section with is that if we believe something is true or false but don't know how to back that up then what are we actually saying so it's our it's our duty as as humanity to actually to to be learners of society, of history, of people, of culture. And I think one of the things that that Kevin talked about in that, um, gosh, I forget what that group was called, the McMinnimans that you're at.
0: Um, it was called Race Talks. I, I race just, talk. in conclusion to that, you're right. I, I, was, I was allowed to speak. Um, I just felt very humbled by the situation. Yeah. And I actually didn't want to speak. Um, because I you wa-
1: took the posture of a student.
0: Well, I just, yeah, I, I actually just wanted to find out what was yeah. happening and what, and because it affected my life and my children and but my children humility. are children of color. And yeah. so, yeah. So that so takes that was, humility of saying I could be wrong. Well, I, I came in and knew I was wrong.
1: Of course, oh, but, right. but let's so, just like, say for for the general <laughs> populace, I could be wrong. So I'm going to listen. That my voice doesn't matter exactly how I want it to. That may be canceled. I, yeah, hundred percent. Maybe I should be canceled because my culture sucks. I have no culture.
0: Well, I, I think that you know, just that example. I I think that uh, for me, I already knew I was wrong. I'm just trying to now figure out how wrong I am and in what ways and what I'm not seeing and my, my hidden places, you know, that I, that I need to find out and flesh out where I am wrong and how I can grow and learn. Um, but honestly, I, I honestly take that, uh, seriously. I'm in those situations and also, in my theology, where I I have no problem knowing that my theology that I've believed for years and years and years because I've you know preached for a quarter of a century, um, I have no problem fleshing out new theology and new beliefs and new ideas and finding out that I was wrong.
1: Yeah, I think I I hope that my my greatest hope as a preacher is to allow people to learn new things they'd never learned before.
0: And usually that takes me learning new things that I've never learned before.
1: And that takes, yeah, that takes understanding. That takes knowledge. That takes the ability to say that what I know
0: may not Mm -hmm. be
1: absolute truth. Right. Yeah, that's great.
0: But then okay so sharia would it be would it be accurate to say that the old testament is written in a fashion that is an, a a refreshed story in a new era and a refreshed story in a new era like as we carry these stories forward there are like recreation stories and so they're like an ancient story that we knew, but it's refreshed for a new era.
2: Yeah, I, I do think that is part of the way the text is put together. And that's one of the uh, Jewish uh, senses of the meaning of the text, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, yeah, the, it would be, I guess, the their futuristic idea. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that our our version of the Bible is galvanized, what I'll call galvanized, where we, we don't take the scriptures and say, well, how do these apply to our current realities, and do they apply to our current realities? Um, you can call out something 2,000 years ago as, this is wrong, um, but then affirm something 2,000 years ago and say, well, it's a part of society right so like for example slavery was just a part of society so there's like there's like mm-hmm. ideas in scripture that actually just talk about the household of people and their slaves there and it was not called out as as wrong evil, yeah. evil. and, and um, so so but then we have other things that are called out as evil so so carrying that forward there are definitely things in scripture that are completely irrelevant to today's society. Correct?
2: Mixed fiber clothing?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I meant like New Testament things as well. Sure. Yeah.
1: Let's just say not applicable. I think all things are relevant, but not everything is applicable.
0: To, okay, think. so unpack that. Like, what's your definition of relevant? relevant? Because I don't think I don't think that you know slaves just being a part of the household of faith. I wouldn't say calling that a pli- That's just not applicable today. That doesn't. That's not strong enough for me
1: it's relevant is would be something to base off of okay so so there's
0: a metaphor there there's a there's something there and so
1: there's context there's ideas there's things like we we throw out swaths of scripture because it 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 deals with with topics that we're not comfortable discussing yeah Mm -hmm. instead of saying why is this here it Mm -hmm. is relevant for today there is truth in it there is understanding like um gosh we just actually we all just learned this together and it was it was pretty huge that when paul talks about husband loves love wives submit to your husbands Mm -hmm. and the slave like uh by it was the whole structure of the household that they were basically all to come under christ's love it was an Aristotelian form of
0: the rules of the household,
1: and but it was it was putting Jesus right in the middle of Aristotle's idea of the household, right? That wives submit to your husband—that was a known thing, known all across ancient yeah. ancient uh, Near East, ancient uh, Israel for centuries, for centuries.
0: centuries, yeah,
1: long time, long time, and so the idea of that, that Paul was saying was not, I'm going to create this system of household. That wasn't Paul's. Paul's right. system of household was how are we going to include Jesus into this? Right. Which was huge. That's something that we actually all learned recently that we, that we figured out. And that changed well, a lot of my understanding. And I would say that in the past we have said, that's not relevant for today but that i feel like probably is the most relevant passage i have read in a long time because how do you how do you put jesus into all relationships how do you put jesus into the into the social understanding of of our own american caste system of our own household systems how do you how do you include the love of jesus Right. And so that was my whole, my whole theory of relevant versus applicable. Okay. Yeah. So, well,
2: cause I, if you deem something irrelevant, then you don't even have to look at the historical context and you can't right. arrive at any other conclusions.
0: Correct. Okay.
1: But they may, but the conclusion that you may come to mm-hmm. may not be applicable to your life. Mm-hmm or may not be even applicable to our culture, to our, to our era, to our t- time period, anything.
0: But well, you have that going on in just real time as well. So when you read ancient texts, like the Bible, you, uh, you see things differently in different areas of your life. So when I was younger, I, if I read the Bible, like if I was in my twenties and I read <laughs> actually read the Bible, um, then I had a perspective of a 20 year old with a 20 year old mentality looking through that lens and and reading the Bible with that lens now that I'm older and I'm you know have a different context in life i you know have I'm a professional I have you know different you know marketplace opportunities that I take part in I have children I have you know, a family, I have, you know, this different context. So, I, so all of a sudden that I read the same passage, my friend Chris was talking about this last night, I read the same passage and then something else jumps out on the page where I go, wow, I, I've read that like a hundred times and I've never seen it that way, right? So w- was it less true in my twenties and more true in my fifties? Some people say, well, now you're wiser. I would just say that we see through a different cultural lens.
1: And mm-hmm. I think people have spiritualized that by saying that that is the illumination doctrine oh, of scripture. Yeah, I'm, right. not, and so I'm not talking about you that. Gotta be, you gotta, be kind, of, gotta <laughs> right. be
0: kind of careful with what you just said. That No, 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 yeah. God illuminates it for my life now and didn't then. Correct. Mm, a, that's that, yeah, that's illumination doctrine. That's like right. things
1: that, yeah.
0: So the things, the things that have influence, I think of subjectivity So Kierkegaard said that that uh, the absolute truth will never be known, but we can, huh? Seen, 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 seen or really, like, really only revealed in likeness. So ultimately, we don't know truly what God is like. That's why we have these things like, well, are like Mormons going to heaven? Are good people going to heaven? Or are these people that don't believe in Jesus? How about the person that lives in the middle of nowhere that's never, you know, been introduced to Jesus? Do they get to go to heaven too? And we say, oh, God is a big God; He's gracious. And when we get there, we'll certainly mm-hmm. be probably be surprised. You're why would there. we? Why would we ever say that if we have the absolute truth? That this cosmic killjoy in the sky has this household that he has chosen before you were knitted in your mother's womb. Hmm. And those that are in are in. And those that are out are out because we believe in predestination is the absolute truth. And there's this place called hell for eternal damnation that those people that he declares are out, he declares are out. Are sent there for the gnashing of teeth and the pitchfork poke and the burning skin and the torture of the devil for eternity. So, so that I mean, honestly, that is a theology. Um, I've, is heard the, that, I've heard that. I've heard that. The main, the main theology right now. So, I've heard that from a preacher in the last fifteen years of my life preached just like that. Uh, so. So where was I going with that? Oh, it's the absolute truth. The reason why we have that question, well, I guess we'll be surprised when we get there, is because we don't know the absolute truth. We see the likeness, as Paul would say in Romans, the likeness of that truth and the things that he has made. What I was saying is Kierkegaard said that that he didn't probably even believe in absolute truth in and of itself. Um, But he would say that that the space between me and the text that space is our cultural influence it's our influences it's our knowledge it's our brain the way that we work we can get really close to knowing what is really true and what's not true but there's always a little hairline of space between us and the text whatever that text is so like I came up with ours, our race, our readings, our, our religion, our roles, our real life experiences. That was sure is. our real life experiences, our region where we were raised, where we grew up, where we live, our region, all of that influences our belief systems. Yay, nay, good, bad.
1: Great.
2: Yep. Just a
0: slippery slope, Sherea? No. What is the slippery slope? You know
2: what, it's a logical fallacy is what it is.
0: <laughs> My thoughts are a logical fallacy or the slippery slope? No,
2: the slippery slope is a logical fallacy. Just because you don't want some unattended consequences doesn't make something untrue.
0: So if I don't believe in absolute truth, does that mean that I'm on a slippery slope of all people are going to heaven and we're just gonna just wash away our theology and not believe in Jesus anymore? I believe that I there don't is, think so. Oh, okay. I believe that there I get is shouty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I believe that there's no way to not
0: believe in absolute truth. There's no way to not believe in absolute truth. Tell me, unpack that.
1: Oliver's having a little hard time right now, so you're here in the background. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, we live our lives with the idea of absolute truth, so we orientate them to what we feel like is absolute truth. And so in my section that we are probably not gonna get to because it's already 9.30. So it um, I believe that the absolute truth is the characteristics of God. And in Exodus 34, God gives God's attributes. Steadfast love all in, like, a uh, faithfulness, goodness, kindness. So you can go back and read that. There are negatives in there as well. That's a balance and a friction, which is also the idea of, of absolute truth. And that the characteristic of God is the object for me. Now, that can be different for anyone, but everyone has an orientating idea of life. That they that they put themselves to, that is their objective truth. I believe people put objective truth in there, that and put things in their objective truth bubble that shouldn't be there, at all. But to them, it is objective truth. Like uh, we talk about, you know, gays. Are you or-
0: are you saying? Hold on a second. Are you saying again? Just repeat back what I heard you say. Is that everyone has an absolute truth?
1: Everyone has an absolute object, uh, absolute truth. Let's say objective truth. Yeah, everyone so has, everyone has something. So absolute. Something they consider something absolute. Absolute no. they it. Okay. They may or okay. may not consider it, but uh, they okay. have an absolute truth in their life. There is no way to not
0: believe in absolute truth,
1: and so you even take nihilism. Sorry. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute so there's no way to believe in su- if you said it cannot it's it's hidden like i said that you cannot see it only the likeness of it so so whatever the absolute truth is out there that that you know makes gravity exist i believe the force you- of the universe
1: i believe that you can
0: see absolute truth well, it it does say you can clearly see it in the likeness of.
1: That is that is a um, that is a Socratic idea that the that the likeness of the object. I'm sorry, this is going to get way esoteric. Yeah, the is,
2: realm of ideals and.
1: And so, yes, you were 100 percent right, Kevin. Um, that it's kind of like the type and anti-type idea that. Like the type is Jesus, and all these anti-types are the things that reflect Jesus. This so the reflection, not really anti-against, more about reflection. And so I believe that you can see objective truth because I believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every human.
0: So if I pushed back a little bit and said, okay, I get that. But that's just a potential.
1: That is my that is my idea of truth. And so like when you look at truth, truth is from where you're sitting at in life, right? I mean, I doubt that someone that doesn't study philosophy would, would want to believe or even think about truth because this is probably completely boring for them. <laughs> but everyone has a orientating idea around around life that is absolute. And so one orientating idea that I have is that or one absolute truth is I believe that you can see absolute truth. You can. You can see it in other people because we are what the Imago Day, we are the image of God. And that God is our only absolute that we have. The the characteristics and personality of God. And so we talked about this this morning a little bit as well, that when, if you've ever taken a yoga class and you did the namaste at the end, namaste is the idea of I bow to the God that's within you. And so it's recognizing that we are all created in God. And so if you read scripture, or if you read culture, if you read creation, because I think even creation carries the mark of God, like non, non-human creation, that we are able to see objective truth, that we're able to bear witness to be of, of that objective truth mm-hmm. as well through our actions. Then we are able to see truth in its essence by expressing and through Jared Bias and all other things by expressing love. And so Kierkegaard, going back to Soren Kierkegaard, who's a, um, we've talked about him a lot tonight, especially. Uh, he's pretty foundational in all postmodern theologies. That all truths are social cultural axioms, or all so where you sit at in life, where you what position you you view God at to the object that is the personality of God.
0: So let me back up here, because I feel like you deconstructed some things that I thought that you held to, and now you're on this different trail.
1: Transcendental.
0: I may yeah. have switched, and that's okay. Yeah. You you are absolute truth adjacent. You're close, you're just adjacent. So so do you believe that you can see the face of God?
1: I think well, so a couple things.
0: Number I mean, that's one. just one just yes or no. Do you believe? let me add let me not not you but your belief. Do you believe that the Bible teaches that you can see the face of God? No, on earth. So the Bible teaches clearly that you cannot on this side of earthly realm, no, right?
1: I don't think that it says that you can. it doesn't say that you can't.
0: It says that you cannot see the face of God.
1: Are you saying that as truth or are you trying to like say the Bible says that you cannot see the face of God?
0: Okay, well, let me just look it There's, up in real there time. There was
1: quite a few people that saw the face of God.
0: And did they live?
1: They did live. Yeah. Who? Um, help me out, Sharia. Elisha saw the face of God. Yeah. Um, and did Elisha...
2: Weird. In,
1: in one story, <laughs> I believe that uh, Moses actually did see the face of God, and then it comes back to say that it was hidden in the cleft of the rock. God, mm-hmm. He saw God's holiness... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's so. not the face uh, of
2: God. Isaiah? Does Isaiah count before the throne of God? And saw his one. face?
0: Yes. Yeah. I, that is one too. Wait, two. Wait, wait, wait. So then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots. He saw vision. Elijah. I, I will have to i will have to see that I'll have to figure We're, that out because it's in real so, time here I don't
1: so what are you trying to get to let's go to that
0: well like mm. okay so so let me look it up because it's important that like in exodus 3220. John. Okay, so John 1.18. Look up John
2: 1.18. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
0: I guess I can. Hold on.
2: I recommend Isaiah 6.1, though.
0: Okay, all right.
1: <laughs> no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him.
0: Wow, that is like what version is that? What I have no is- clue.
1: <laughs> King James maybe.
2: What else is going on? Like what's what's happening right now? Is Jesus just talking or?
0: No, it's John 118. 1 so 18. how about Oh so it's the about, prologue. Yeah. So so how about Exodus 3320? If you look on the face of God, you'll die, is that what you're talking about? You cannot see my face for no man has seen me and live.
2: That's pretty early in the story, though.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying. Well, John one fourteen. Uh, no, no, not not that. Uh, John one eighteen. It's pretty late in the story. No one has seen God at any time.
2: Okay, but Isaiah
0: 6.1. Okay, so Isaiah six one.
2: In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne.
1: So Abraham saw God's face in Genesis 18, 1 through 3. Jacob saw God's face in Genesis 32, 30. Gideon. Then what
0: did then what did Paul mean in Romans 120?
1: Which says what? you have to pick That it.
0: God's characters and even invisible qualities. Right. So it says, let me look it up, because this is real time and we're just going into overtime. Uh 120. One twenty. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities—okay,
2: has so been invisible qualities.
0: His in eternal power and divine nature—it's defined. Okay. Okay. Wait a minute. What version am I in? Because I don't want to be in a jacked-up version. Okay, it's NIV. It's okay um pretty, pretty jacked but it's okay. pretty jacked okay for it's since the creation of the world all
1: of our viewers here because we're
0: gone so late <laughs> god's invisible qualities so the invisible qualities are hidden that's what invisible means okay uh-huh. i don't i don't understand what
1: you're but trying, that what we're trying says, to get
2: at. okay the invisible qualities are god's eternal power and divine nature yes so what about is God's love? That's loved?
0: pretty that's pretty broad.
2: One of those invisible qualities or, or not.
0: What? I, so I don't know. I'm God just I'm just saying he... these God has these invisible qualities that can only be seen in the likeness of what he is made.
1: God is made, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: But yeah. What God is made. So we have invisible qualities, which is divine nature and eternal power. Divine nature is pretty broad, the nature of God. So could you say the divine nature is the nature of God? So the nature of God is an invisible quality that only can be seen in the likeness of what God has made. That is the absolute truth that I'm saying cannot be seen.
1: Okay. The divine nature. What What do you mean by
0: seen? Physically with your eyes—is that what you're talking about? Well, the the purity of God's absolute cannot be witnessed as human beings. Whoa. Only the likeness of the purity of God's nature can be seen in the likeness of what God has made. So you're. Um, so what's your? Go doing... ahead, Shreya. Go ahead, Shreya. Shreya sure. has some. Um, um. Um.
2: Well, so you're in the NIV, right?
0: Yeah. Let's get out of that.
2: Yeah, because I've got the CEB.
0: That's even worse. No, that's <laughs> good. No, it I don't know. I, know no. said, I just make it. Ever
2: since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen in because they are understood through the things God has made. Same diff. Is it?
0: yeah they're understood so, through the likeness of what god is made it
2: doesn't sound like the same dip to me it sounds like let's, the go, to the grit.
1: let's go to the grid let's go to the stop 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 we're going way too late let's
0: just let's just okay let's we gotta here. wrap this up
1: so uh, what i'm trying so i'm tr- what you are taking the idea and i wish i could pull it out of my head but i can't right now that the representation of the object is the physical object that you can see in front of you what I'm communicating is more about emotion in space rather than physical attributes. And so the idea of steadfast love
0: is an objective truth. That we okay, can... that, that God has object, but can we witness that steadfast we... love? We can witness it, we can experience the pure, it. The purity of the absolute truth, can we actually? Even, actually, even not in
1: purity, but it points us to the
0: absolute truth. That's all I'm saying. Okay. That's all I'm saying is in the likeness of what God has made you and me, we can experience God's steadfast love because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is true. That's what we were talking about this morning. And that's since true. we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we we see it in part only in part only that in, what, is is that what paul says somewhere
1: yeah because it's it is not a full representation of that but once you get the collective whole the sum it's act the sum of the parts is greater than the whole right correct well that's a theory Fair? yeah okay so the idea of when you have multiple voices multiple people, multiple cultures, multiple ideas, speaking into the person of God as your object, then you come into a more fuller understanding even than what it was created in the beginning to be like.
0: Because So you're saying that the collective voice of humankind speaks a greater whole of God than God himself? Than God's God self, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for thank you for correcting my gender specificity so okay well i mean that's legit i'm saying i i (laughs) but you what i'm saying is that that god is not a visible creature on earth that you can witness god's purity of the enduring steadfast love of god
1: i think where we might have gotten stuck at is when we kept saying see and face Mm -hmm. that the word anthropomorphize God that we try to
0: make God look just like us well I mean face is all that is is the character of God yes
1: and so but do you agree with that because you said yes people would hear that and say that is a
0: physical face well no it's not a physical face
1: the face of God is the characteristics of God. Mm-hmm. It is God's holiness. Set apartness. Right. But I also believe that the objective truth of God is
0: action, not word. Whoa, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the uh everyone I, uses it for uh there it is. 1 Corinthians 13. Yep. So this is actually a, a relevant scripture. 1 Corinthians 13:12.
1: Relevant or applicable.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm just here. 13:12. Um okay, 13:12. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Correct. So it kind of shows me that scripture I know is used for, gifts of the spirit and all of that to break that down and to build it up but but that kind of shows me that i only know a part but what you're saying is the collective hermeneutic would say for eons of time now that the collection of the enduring love of god is seen in parts and so the parts sum is greater than the whole correct Wow, that is a slippery slope.
1: (laughs) Slippery.
2: No.
1: I don't know. Did we actually talk about
0: the theory of truth tonight? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But we got somewhere. I hope everybody got something out of that. So if you're listening later in the week, that uh, was a long version of something that... uh, that was supposed to be a little shorter and summing up. So we'll take a few minutes to try to sum it up next week, and then uh, <laughs> it, we, it might we, take the entire time. Time we are going to talk about Jake's uh, worldview. Two, Two weeks because you have one more section.
1: Where's my finger? You have one more section.
0: And no, we then, do we?
1: Yeah, this is number. This is this is number six. There's seven sections. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: Oh, seven is praxis.
0: Praxis. Got it. Okay. So we got one more section. So in two weeks, we're going to hear from Jake. Next week, uh, we're going to Unless talk you about... want to
1: do that first and then go into Praxis because that could take the rest of millennia to talk about Praxis. I don't know.
0: Well, we'll probably take, we'll talk about your worldview next week because we need to okay. button that up and then we'll talk about Praxis. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, you two. I hope we got somewhere. I hope everyone understood that. There were parts I didn't. I didn't I, there were parts I didn't understand. <laughs> we so, did really good divining terms in the beginning. <laughs> we did great, and then we just lost it. All right, good night, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that and got something out of it.